0: One,
1: two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, home of the song story, which we define as stories connected to memories that are resurfaced when hearing a song that is attached to a particular time and place. Thanks for listening, I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Dr. Clay Motley. Clay is Dean of the Honors College at Florida Gulf Coast University. He's been here for five and a half years. Originally from Richmond, Kentucky, Clay has degrees in English from the University of South Carolina, Eastern Kentucky University, and the University of Kentucky. His primary area of research is the culture of the American South, particularly its music, literature, and religion. He's currently writing a book on the music history of Clarksdale, Mississippi. He has a wife named Christy and a daughter named Camilla, who will be starting high school next year. His hobbies are cooking and playing guitar. He was brought to us by Episode 143 guest, Dr. Jim Lorenz, who's now the past provost at FGCU. Hey there, Clay, how you doing? I'm doing great. Are you a particularly organized person? I am. I noticed you had a folder that has handwritten on it three song stories,
0: <laughs> and it, it has your instructions. It has what I emailed you, so that way I could. Wait, you uh,
2: have, did you write printouts of your email to us? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that way I could read. That way I could read it and remember what I was supposed to say for these different stories. <laughs> uh, well, we appreciate your uh, your you know due diligence. Um, okay, so where did you grow up? Uh, Richmond, Kentucky. Okay, where is that? It is about thirty minutes south of Lexington, Kentucky. So where the University of Kentucky is. Uh huh. Uh, Richmond's about 30 minutes south of there. So what was the musical background of your childhood there? Uh, in, what was my own personal musical Yeah, I mean? I mean, just describe what what was
1: around you musically when you were a kid.
0: Right. Um, you know, part—actually, one of the stories I'm going to talk about is a little bit about, you know, the the music in my own house, um, particularly, in some ways, me not being around a lot of music in my oh, house. Okay. Uh, you know, my, my family, um, you know, are, are amazing, but they— They weren't particularly into music that much. Um, You know, my dad really didn't enjoy listening to music. And uh, my mom had some old 70s, kind of 60s and 70s country records, um, Loretta Lynn, Patsy Cline, things of that. And so I can remember mom ironing and listening to country music on Sundays. And that's really about it as far as around my own personal house goes. Um, You know, when I think about... Other music of my childhood, the first thing that honestly pops to mind is like 70s variety shows. Remember there was like, remember like the Johnny Cash, like variety show? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Smothers Brothers and, you know, this type of stuff. Hee Haw. Oh yeah. yeah, Actually, you know, I actually, I was thinking Hee Haw would be something I should say (laughs) and then then I I forgot it. So I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, I would say Hee Haw was my single biggest musical influence as a child. Wow. As a child, because...
1: Uh, wow, that's right. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um
0: and uh I'll tell you a funny story about Heehaw in a second. But we uh so lots of weekends we would drive to Sloan's Valley, Kentucky, which is sort of uh near the Tennessee border. And um that's where my grandmother lived and that's where my mother grew up. And we would go there and on Saturdays my grandmother would make a big kind of country cooking dinner with meatloaf and green beans and you know, all these types of things. And I was young. Uh, she died when I was eight. So this took place, you know, when I was eight or before. But on Saturday evenings after the big dinner, we would all go in and sit in the living room and watch hee haw and eat ice cream. And so that was like this sort of thing I remember with like Buck Owens and uh, you know, all the different hee haw people and the jokes and I just associate it with like meatloaf, green beans, Saturday night at grandma's. Good times in southern Kentucky. (laughs) Exactly. And um, so really that was where I had a lot of, I'd say, consistent musical um, influence. And, um, you know, I I used to think I really didn't like country music all that much. You know, now I I like traditional country music, like a lot of hee-haw. But at the time, you know, it was, I don't know, just more of kind of the feeling of like family and that kind of being content with your family on Saturday night. And I thought hee haw was really funny too <laughs> at the time. But um, I think it was. Mm-hmm. I think it would probably hold up strangely well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've actually watched some YouTube,
2: you know, stuff of of some old hee haw. Do, pretty- do you remember off the top of your head any of the like cornfield <laughs> jokes?
0: Oh, um, gosh. Let me think. We can try to find That's one. what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> There was uh, the one I remember the most was that guy that always wore like the dirty um almost like long johns and mm-hmm. his wife would always like threaten to hit him with a frying pan <laughs> you know like <laughs> and uh but yeah I don't I don't remember any any specific of the jokes really well but I do remember sometimes they would like get they would they would make each other laugh so much that sometimes the jokes wouldn't even come out and the, the camera would just show them and then they would just start cracking oh, up they'd break yeah, yeah yeah they would just start giggling and laughing and that became like part of the joke you know but, um, yeah. you know, Grandpa
1: Jones, you are Grandpa Jones, yes, am I'm, I'm so happy to have this moment alone with you. I, I'm here to claim my undying love. This is on the left side here for, for, for your daughter. Now, I, I tell you, let me count the ways. One, two, three, five, six. Wait a minute. Uh, what happened to four? I don't love her that way. But please, I beg you, give me her hand and knife. My... <laughs> that's what's that what's that guy's name richard <laughs> I don't, grandpa no, jones no well glenn campbell no that no. actor's famous he was he went on to become like uh when mork and mindy came out he was mork's kid
0: oh uh jonathan Winter. yeah jonathan Winter. he was oh, the yeah, one yeah. he okay. was the one delivering that joke. yeah so uh yeah they always had the the goofy 70s uh you know celebrities on there mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh so it, but like years later when i started actually getting more into like music scholarship there was a guy that was a sub-editor for, like, the Oxford Dictionary of Music, and I'd met him at a conference, international conference on country music, and he actually asked me to write some, some entries on um, Hee Haw people. So it was pretty – I was just – I felt very just crazy that, you know, after – here, I, you know, this kid in Kentucky watching Hee Haw on Saturday night, and then here I am actually writing an entry on, like um, – oh, what's her name? I'm drawing a blank. Um, Mini Pearl, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, ra- I'm writing mm-hmm. like, a, like a, a dictionary entry for Mini Pearl, you know. Wow. <laughs> um,
1: okay, so besides Hee Haw country music, what was like the first music that you latched onto yourself, not being influenced mm-hmm. by your folks or whatever? Uh,
0: Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. yeah. The uh, you know, I'm I am now 47, so when um, my kind of middle school years really hit. With, like, MTV exploding. Yeah, yeah. So my first um, kind of musical gift was, I think I was fifth grade, 85, and my parents bought me a Walkman. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this was, like, the classic Sony Walkman with the foam ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And I got uh, Michael Jackson Thriller. And I got Lee Greenwood's Greatest Hits. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I think they were like putting a choice in front of me and seeing which direction I was. There are
2: paths, young man.
0: Yes. And uh, so Michael Jackson's Thriller, I listened so much that I wore it out. And Lee Greenwood, I I couldn't make it through a song.
1: (laughs) I'm a couple years older than you. And my first Walkman slash tapes Christmas was um, it was Madonna's Like a Virgin. And like the police, the police goes to the machine, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> and um, so, and the police
0: is where I went. I, uh, I, I think the first record or first CD I bought myself was, um, I know I bought Culture Club "Color by Numbers" because uh-huh. that was when Karma Chameleon was really big. Yeah, yeah. And I bought um, Prince Purple Rain. I remember buying. Ooh. I remember asking my mom if I could buy that at Walmart when they That's had a, the, You know the tapes when they had those big long plastic um, sleeves that they were in. Yeah, to like the anti theft them. thing. Can't put it down your pants. Yeah, I can remember like <laughs> taking that and like kind of nervously asking my mom if I could, um, you know, get this tape. And that and that was Purple Rain.
2: What did What did your parents, not having much music in the house, like mm-hmm. what did they think about? I mean, you went to MJ and print. (laughs) Right, right, right. Like uh, pop icons. Did you try to play it for them? Did you ever listen with them? I listened
0: around them. You Uh know, like I would play, I think Michael Jackson I would play in the car maybe. Um, I remember some friends being over and us listening to um, Purple Rain on like, I had like a Sony like kind of jam box. And I can remember us listening to it and playing Darling Nikki and turning it down at certain points. Right. So hey, Mom, what's
1: that? <laughs> right,
0: right, right. She likes magazines. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, you know, I, I can remember playing it around them. Uh, but back then, I don't remember overly trying to like get them to like it. But they were always super supportive of it. You know, they never thought – I mean, I, my in my room, I had – Michael Jackson poster Um, I actually I remember in Gatlinburg I bought a Culture Club poster where they were all dressed as baseball Players Mm -hmm. sort of suggestively holding Baseball bats Mm -hmm. and I nowadays Like I think my god what did they think I was such a progressive Kid and didn't even know it (laughs) like what did they Think when like you know here I am at like some Gatlinburg fair and I'm wanting to buy
2: This culture (laughs) club you know Maybe they thought you really liked baseball Uh, (laughs) The boy likes Sports (laughs) Similar
1: times Um, uh, Music musical Instruments being played around you by you? Uh,
0: no, not I didn't. Uh, not until well, actually, around that time, I guess. Um, it, we had a middle school band, and I decided to play trumpet. Okay. And um, so I actually got to where I could read sheet music with the trumpet, you know, with that. But I didn't. I, I wasn't thrilled about being in band. I wasn't thrilled about the trumpet. Um, you know, something we can talk about later if you want. I mean, like I, I practice like guitar now. And I do uh, some acoustic and electric. I practice it almost every night, and I love it. But I never really found that instrument that I got really excited about then. How long ago
1: did you pick up the guitar?
0: Uh, well, I first got it – my my daughter's now 13. I got it when my wife was pregnant as a birthday present. Um, and she was on bed rest for like three months and went to bed at like eight o'clock at night. So I would sit downstairs and practice guitar for like two hours. And I had like a, 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 teacher I would meet once with once a week. Um, but then my daughter was born and life got extremely complicated. And it's not like I could just sit downstairs and, you know, play by myself for hours. So it really just went I mean, away. It could, it'd just be bad form. <laughs> right. I, I would not be parent of the year if, if I were just, you know, rocking out downstairs. And, uh, so, um, you know, I didn't play it for years. And then, you know, I pick it up occasionally. But then in the last, I'd say, year, I, st- I started getting back into it more. And then for sort of birthday-Christmas combo, I got a um, an electric guitar. And that's been really fun, you know, to play around with. Cool. So uh,
1: Before we get to your first song, what was the first song that you learned? Like, what was your, I'm going to
0: learn a song. Uh-huh. And you pick one. I... Um, on guitar? Let yeah. me think. Um, I know one of my first ones was Hank Williams' Weary Blues because it's a very simple kind of just strumming pattern. And, you know, I thought that would be one that would be kind of cool to do. So that, that, that was one of the first ones I can remember kind of asking – the um so the guitar teacher to kind of you know create the tabs for so I could I could play it. You sing too? No, no. no. <laughs> you, you humming in your head? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do not I do not sing very well oh, at all. Come but come
2: on, um,
1: okay.
0: Kept, first song. Well, no, real quick before that, I still want. <laughs> did either of you guys get that hee haw joke? I didn't get it. No, I, I couldn't. I did not know. Okay, good. It was no. just me. But, um, do you mind if I mention one thing real quick? Of course that? not. The, Go ahead. The but after. The sort of the Madonna and – or not Madonna. Yeah, I like Madonna too. But after the sort of the popular MTV stuff, I remember um, – you know, remember MTV sometimes would play really old songs that – almost like pre-video era just because they needed the content and they played actual videos all day. And I remember standing in my basement in probably the mid-80s. I was probably in around seventh grade or so. And they played um, Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix when he was like this real drippy kind of cartoon. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I can remember just standing there with, like, my mouth open, just staring at it, like, what is this? (laughs) End of this day, like, that opening riff of that, you know, of, like, it just, like, makes the hair on my neck stand up, you know, when I hear that. And so, like, I can remember, like, standing in the basement, mid-80s, Richmond, Kentucky, and, you know, they had MTV was playing Voodoo Child and and just – I just remember, like, I'd never, I i didn't, didn't know anything else like that existed. Right. Yeah. You know, so that kind of opened up a world to more of, like, rock and roll, you know. And mm-hmm. so I kind of was – I still liked some of the poppy stuff, you know, the in the, the mainstream kind of 80s stuff that you'd see on MTV. But um, I started going to a place called Recordsmith, which was – Eastern Kentucky University is in Richmond. So there was, like, a college record store there called Recordsmith. Smith. And that, that was like where my music education took off. I would, I would go down there and hang out and I would ask them, I mean, I would say like, I want to buy a Rolling Stones album, watch, which one should I buy? You know, and they would like curate it for me. Uh And, you know, and I would, every week I would have, you know, an allowance or money I'd made at a job in the summer when I was in high school. And I would go down there and I'd spend every penny of it, you know, at RecordSmith. So that's kind of where I started getting more into, you know, rock, but it kind of started, I think with, sort of first hearing Jimi Hendrix do Voodoo Child. Nice.
2: Yeah, I think people have, like, the, uh, like, You Can Do That yeah. songs. This yeah. for, for me, i talked about this before on the show, but for me, that was Cashmere. Um, oh yeah. Like, just just the beginning, just a da-da-da, da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know, I must have been, like, 10 or something like that. And I I didn't know what's what that sound was, <laughs> but I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing.
0: I've often said that the best rock and roll songs, to me, sound like, this, sound like something slightly bad is happening during it <laughs> You <know, it> <laughs> this kind of this sort of sordidness or or something unsavory is, is is it's a it's a soundtrack too and uh you know certainly i think cashmere and um you know the voodoo child by hendrix would be one of those
1: one of the big ones for me was you remember fish heads fish yeah heads, yeah, yeah, yeah roly poly fish mm-hmm. heads that's like 80s mtv right yep. there anyway first song What is it? Do you want to tell a story?
0: Um, Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I think lead up to the, to the song on this one. Cool. So, um, touching on what we talked about earlier was, uh, you know, so I didn't, when I grew up, most of the music in my house was either, um, you know, again, maybe mom listening to some old country records or hee-haw. And, um, what I really thought was that when you grew up, you were going to grow out of liking music. Because I really didn't know any adults that that music was very important to them. You know, I I knew some people that maybe were like musicians that like played in church or, uh, you know, something like that. But I I didn't – I just kind of always assumed that, you know, everything when you're a kid, you know, like there's a a period in your life like a G.I. Joe guy is like the most important thing in the world to you or a He-Man character (laughs) or whatever. You know, and it's like – but then two years later, you know, you're throwing those things out or selling them in a yard sale. You know, and it's just like – it's just a phase, you know? And so I kind of always thought that, you know, even though I really liked music, I was buying a lot of tapes um, and, you know, it was something I really enjoyed. I assumed I would get to the point that it would just be just like the He-Man or the G.I. Right, Joes. It right. would just be, you know— You'll the, outgrow it. I'll outgrow it. And, you know, because it just didn't seem like—there was no real adults that I was around that music seemed very important to them. So I just was almost like dreading the day that I started not caring about the, mu- about my music. Huh. And so, um, uh, a friend of mine that I grew up with, uh, from, you know, nursery school on through graduating high school, his, uh, father was a art professor at Eastern Kentucky University. And, um, so, um, you know, I would go over to their house and hang out and, and I got to know him well. And, um, you know, I remember we were probably like early high school and he, he had a record player in his, in his living room and he gave me a, a, a record of um, the band's greatest hits. And he was like, you need to listen to this. And so like we put it on and sit there and listen to it. And like my friend wasn't very – he didn't really care too much about music. He wasn't into it too much. And then when I was – I think a senior in high school. Uh, my high school was actually connected to Eastern Kentucky University and you could take um, college classes while a high school student. And so I took drawing and it was a three-hour class with my friend's father. Huh. It was drawing one. And so it was like, we were in there for like three, it was me and a bunch of college students. So I got to learn a lot listening to yeah. things they were saying. But my, my the, the professor would say, you know, go, somebody go down to my office and pick some music for us to listen to. And so we would go down there and he had all these tapes and there was like, Hot Rocks by the Rolling Stones. There was, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, really, anything that was just sort of like FM rock kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, he's he's a grown up, and he huh. he likes he still likes music. Like he has his own music here in his office, and you know, we'd put it on, and people would, uh, you know, the, the college students would argue about you know certain songs and, and this and that, and so. Um, you know, it was, it was fascinating to me to kind of get this window that, like, it, I, it was the first time that I realized I wasn't going to grow out of music if I didn't want to, that it was something that it could always kind of stick with me. And it was – and so uh, his name's Don Dewey, and he, he's uh, – was uh, was a now a retired professor at Eastern Kentucky University. But it was kind of watching him still really care about music, you know, as a working adult that made me realize that that was something that I could also continue to kind of get into.
1: Did you feel kind of relieved?
0: You know yeah. What I mean? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <Be> like, whoo. <"Whew." laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was it was funny just being around all the students because since it was a three hour drawing class, you know, it, just hearing them talk about music, argue about music, comment on songs. I remember we were, They were playing Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones. And some of the art students were talking about how that song was sexist and some other people would, you know, defend it. And, you know, it was just it was fascinating just because I was, you know, kind of a sheltered high schooler. And here were these, not just college students, but college art majors, right, you know, kind of talking about their lives and, and music. And uh, so it was, it was a really great kind of um, musical education.
1: And you picked this one just because it's representative of that time, or is that uh, particular?
0: Two things. One, it's, it's one of my favorite uh, songs by the band. So I thought, you know, the band I always remember because that was the album that, that uh, Don Dewey gave to me and said, you need to listen to this. So, you know, I really liked the band right off the bat. And also... Uh, this song is is the first song I played for my wife so we and I'll talk about her later in another song but we were uh, you know when I was talking about some of the music I like this was the song I picked as like this is sort of you know song number one to understand the kind of stuff I like you know and so that's that's one of the reasons I picked it as well All
1: right, uh, let's uh, listen to it together then it's When I Paint My Masterpiece by the band from the 1971 album Cahoots 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 Cahoots. ah close enough
2: was it your parents kind of reticence to have like a lot of music on that like what what put in your head that you would grow out of music
0: really i think it was just my parents and their friends you know really the adults you're around the most none of them really or very few of them t- seemed like music was an important part of their lives you know i i don't remember them like at parties or the, you know like the you know music playing or um them having conversations that involved music or purchasing music, you know, we had one good family friend uh, that uh, could play banjo, and you know, I thought that was cool. But other than that, like it just never was a really a part of any sort of social context you know so it just sort of seemed it was just sort of missing in the adult world as far as what my view of the adult world was.
2: Yeah because something I thought about when you were talking about the the art class was it wasn't just that that you got to hear music it was you talked about they were talking about mm-hmm. music like yeah. about bands, songs, interpretations. Yeah
0: yeah it was it was important to them it was something that um they had thought about it was something that had relevance to them you know where they would even argue about politics you know with the, with the music and the and the songs and um i i hadn't been around people that that did that you know um you know now you know with me nowadays you know if you if you were to walk into my office if you were to walk into my home if you were to <laughs> sit sit, get in the car with me that would be something that would that would come out very very quickly but you know uh the people i was around then Um, You know, as far as like like friends of my parents, you know, a lot of them that just wasn't something that that they wore on their sleeve. You just didn't see it or hear of it. Because I think for most of them, it just wasn't something that was very important.
1: Hmm. You know, I've never heard that version before. Oh really? I've heard the Dylan version a million yeah. times. Yeah, and you know he wrote it. Yeah, I Dylan, know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's it's uh, it's really good and interesting and different. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I expected, but I just I've honestly never heard that version before. As strange uh, as that sounds.
0: The the lead singer or, or the at least the person who was singing that one, Levon Helm. I remember someone said um, if Mount Rushmore were one of the, if the faces of Mount Rushmore were to open up their mouths and start singing, it would sound like Levon <laughs> Helm. <laughs> oh. And so the, the band kind of has that great sort of Americana roots music. Kind of sound, which I really like. They still on your rotation today? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I listen to the band still quite a bit. I've actually got—I don't know if you all have seen these. Uh, Elliot Landy was a photographer. He took pictures of the band in 1968 in uh, outside of Woodstock. Uh, they had big their first album is called Songs from Big Pink because that was their their house where uh, Danko owned it, and Bob Dylan lived right down the street, and and they practiced every day in his base in the basement of Big Pink and uh this photographer took these really cool black and white photos yeah. yeah where they're like out by a lake and they're standing in the woods and they've got the beards
2: and the hats and
0: yeah 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 so it it looks like you know it's it's a some kind of uh, tin type from you know 1870 or something mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, really it's, uh, 1968. And so I've got one of those where they're all kind of standing very kind of erect and side by side, shoulder to shoulder with their beards and their hats. With the mountains
2: behind them. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I'm looking right at it. Yep. You know, it's funny there cause you know, the majority of them are here in like in black and white, black and white, like grayscale. Mm-hmm. but there's prints that you can get in sepia mm-hmm. and that looks, That's like, really neat. Uh, it's looks like Western, like an old West. picture. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, I,
0: so I've got that framed in my living room. So. <laughs>
1: Um, When you were a kid, like middle school, early high school, what did you think you were going to be
0: when you grew up, or what did you hope to be? Mm. Um, You know, I remember, like middle school, I didn't know, um, you know, I saw a show with doctors, so I thought, maybe I'll be a doctor. They get a lot of money, right? You know, this kind of stuff, and uh, I didn't have a real strong sense of what I wanted to do, Um, and then... But my father was a, a professor at Eastern Kentucky University as well. Um, he taught like health. And, um, and uh, so I didn't want to do anything like with health or anything. But um, you know, I really loved um, reading. So I thought I would be like a, an English professor or a history professor or something like that. That was kind of my goal. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea how you became one. I had no idea what you really did when you were one. You know, I thought you just read books and you know <laughs> that kind of thing, and uh, but you know, again, with sort of my dad and all of his friends, or most of them, in some, one way or another, were connected to university. And all my, fr- I went to school to laboratory school, so it was it was actually run by the College of Education. It was model laboratory school. It was, um, and it's still there. It's it's on EKU's campus. So almost all my friends had one or two parents that worked for you know for Eastern. I went to school every single day on Eastern's campus. Our school was filled with college students who were studying to be you know to be teachers, and um, so I kind of assumed that I would just go on and, and be a college professor, which is actually what I wanted what to do. Which doing, you did, which is actually what I did.
1: Yeah. So you, a lot of people become English majors because they want to be a writer. Mm-hmm was that that was not you or was that you? It was for a while. Yeah.
0: When I was in high school, maybe late high school, um, I was really interested in in writing a little bit. I wrote a few short stories, but nothing very serious. You know, Um, I also thought about uh, being like an art major because I I really enjoyed drawing, which is why I took that art, that that drawing class. But, um, you know, I, I got to college and um I thought I would be a probably major in history, but it seemed like I got a's in all my English classes and B's in all my history classes, so I was like you know i I couldn't there was always, in history they always wanted so many facts I could never produce enough facts to satisfy the professor to get an A, whereas in English it had a lot more to do with like how you can kind of interpret and spin things and spin yeah <laughs> exactly so <laughs> uh so uh, uh i was I was better at spinning than I was at remembering so.
1: Uh, musical memories associated with your time in college, undergrad college.
0: Mm, the Black Crows. That's the number one. I I almost picked a Black Crows song. Um, but there really wasn't a single or very particular story about it. But you know, the college years worked up because you know, Black Crows, their first album, uh Southern or Shake Your Money Maker or was that the first one? I forget. Anyway. Richard. Um yeah. So um <laughs> I'm, on it. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> but,
2: uh, uh yeah, shake your money maker, shake your money maker. Yeah. In 1990,
0: 1990. And then, uh, the second one was 1992. And then, so, you know, I, I was a really big black crows fan cause I, I liked that kind of, you know, stones ish, you know, rolling stones kind of, kind of, uh, Allman brothers, you know, it's kind of the stones and the Allman brothers had a baby, you know, kind of sound. <laughs> and, um, so me and a lot of my friends, Really liked the 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 Black Crows. That that was kind of the band, and we went around and like we went to Chicago and Nashville and Louisville and and drove and and to see them live. So you know, during the college years and a few years thereafter. You know, I probably wound up seeing him like 10, 12 times, wow. you know, something like
2: that. So and, uh, that would have been that's probably pretty close to to the apex of their mm-hmm. of their career too. like you guys were seeing them at the top.
0: Yeah. And, and they, they were sliding down the career scale you know, the, the longer <laughs> it went. You know, tickets were getting cheaper. <laughs> right. But I mean, they were great live. You know, they were such a good live live act. And they were they were always just so like kind of straightforward rock and roll. And that was something that we really liked. So that so the college years. Um, You know, I listen to a lot of different stuff. You know, I've always, I think, had pretty eclectic taste. But, you know, that that's the band that jumps to mind immediately when you think about like what – where was my music listening during those years was definitely the Black Crows. Would you have a peak concert experience outside of the Black Crows? Outside of the Black Crows, a peak concert experience. Gosh. Hmm. Let me think. One that would really stand out. Um I mean, you know, my my first concert was I was actually I think in 8th grade and I went to see I saw John Cougar Mellencamp in 8th grade at in Lexington. And I went with a friend and a couple of her older cousins and they picked me up and we drove to Lexington and it was like this was kind of the height of his fame. This was when he was doing like uh Little Pink Houses and When the Walls Come Tumbling Down and Cherry Bomb and you know those types of songs and um, I mean this was like Rupp Arena was sold out I mean we're talking you know 20 something thousand people probably and and that was like my first actual rock and roll concert so to see like a really popular contemporary person in a sold out like you know big you know Enormo Dome was you know pretty revelatory you know hmm. so that 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 stands out as just like you know I bought like a John Mellencamp t-shirt and like conspicuously wore it like every three days to school to tell everyone that you know I had you know, been to a rock show you do know, you like. still have it? No, sadly, I don't know what happened. That'd to it. be a good one to end up in a gr- mom's
1: attic or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that,
0: I still remember it, but like what it looked like. But that—that's that, really one of the things that stands out, which like really just that, that going to like a first like really like rock concert was pretty amazing. How do you listen to music these days? Hmm. Uh, I would say, I mean, well, not enough, not as much as I probably should, but. Um, Honestly, the, if you're say by time, it would be playing it quietly on Apple Music on my desktop while I'm working. You know, <laughs> in, your,
1: in your office, in
0: my office, and then I do a lot of um, uh, on the on the weekends. I do a lot of cooking. Like that's one of my hobbies is to cook, and so um, I enjoy when I'm kind of in the the chopping up stuff phase to turn on some music. Like I've got a couple like Apple HomePods, and uh, so I like you know this I've made really good sound. So um, I like, you know, picking something, playing that and, uh, you know, listening while I'm, while I'm, you know, kind of preparing a meal over the weekend. That's that's where I kind of do more and more of my recreational listening. Do you have a record player? No. No? No, my wife had a record player that she kept, moved from apartment to apartment, had all these amazing, like she had, uh, I don't know, know the name of the album, but it's the Prince one, like from the 70s where he's like riding a Pegasus or something. He's got this like flowing hair. Uh, I can see it. <laughs> yeah. And and she had all these amazing albums. And just before we moved here uh, from Kentucky, uh, she sold them because you know, we were trying to get rid of a lot of stuff before we moved. And it was like it was really just before vinyl started becoming cool again. Oh, yeah.
2: that's a self-titled album. Okay, yeah.
0: And uh, you know, it was like, come on, when are we ever, You know, we've had this for you know ten years. We've never listened to it once. You know, like like why are we going to pay to move it to Florida? And so and then you know. Next thing you know you know that like that it's like this really I don't even know the name of it, but she does it's this really sought after vintage you know record player that she had, and you know all these records that you know she had from you know that era that you know they're just gone, they're gone, I had
2: that hipster money
0: i just um mm-hmm.
1: I just got my first record player this week, I got just a little suitcase portable record player mm-hmm. from Best Buy. It's nothing fancy. And I have three records so far, and it's really nice because it connects to your Bluetooth devices. Oh, wow. So I have a really nice Bluetooth speaker that can fill my whole living area. So I can put on a record, and it comes out of the Bluetooth speaker instead of just a little speaker. Can you notice
0: favorite. any difference with it being vinyl?
1: You can hear the – you know, you can hear the – Hiss? Or something. Yeah, you can hear the d- imperfections. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I don't know if I can, through that speaker, I think you maybe need nicer speakers right, to right. start hearing or that, feeling that difference or head. I haven't tried it with headphones yeah. yet. That's a good idea. I bought it. I brought it home and you know what it didn't do? It didn't spin. <laughs> I had to take it back. <laughs> it was the, fe- what, the <laughs> only thing it's meant to do.
0: Um, how do you and your wife's music tastes align? Uh, very similarly, actually, you know, the, uh, which is a little bit, we'll get into a, a little bit in, in, I think song number two. But we can kind of head that way if you want. Okay, sure. Yeah, let's do sure. That. But yeah, but she she likes a lot of the same. I mean, I'm more um I I like I mean, I think I'm into music slightly more than she is, and she's going to be mad at me when she listens to this. Um, you know, because I think and plus also I've turned it into a part of my professional life. I mean, my what I do. I mean, I'm I'm a full-time administrator, so I don't really get to do a lot of, you know, scholarly work, but what I what scholarship I do do is on American music, you know popular American music, so blues and rock and roll. And so I've turned that into a research agenda. So um, you know, so I spend more time reading it and about it and listening to it and that kind of thing. but she really likes it a lot, which is why she had the cool records, right? And the record player. And um certainly, you know, where our early conversations were, you know, they were all about music, you know, and so, um, she really likes it a lot, and, and we like mostly the same stuff. You know, there, there's a little bit of. Actually, the first argument we got into was about Steely Dan because I said it sounded like um, roller rink music.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you could
0: just yeah. stick to it <laughs> immediately <it, to> <laughs>
1: roller rink music.
0: Yeah. So, see, honey, I, they agree with me. So. Um, you know the. I said it sounded like this oh. was when she still had an apartment. We had just met, and I remember she liked Steely Dan a lot. And I ca- and I I just got this image of these sort of, you know, dudes with these long butt cuts and sort of uh, you know disco balls, and they were they're skating around the roller rink with their guitars. Know? Yeah, and I, so I called <laughs> it roller rink music, and she was really offended. So, but. I I can't appreciate Steely Dan. I don't really put them on purposely that much. But when I do listen to it, I'm kind of like, yeah, there's some good songs in that. But but it was funny. Our first, like, actual we got mad at each other was over (laughs) Steely Dan. So I appreciate that she takes her music very seriously. Um, Do your kids –
1: you said you have a daughter, two daughters? I have one daughter. One daughter. She's 13. What about her musical taste? She's old enough now where she's kind of bringing stuff to you, I bet.
0: Oh, gosh. She – and this is a good thing, I think. Um, she really likes show tunes. Oh wow! Because she does a lot of theater. Yeah. So she loves musicals. So she listens to um,
2: like. So you had like four years of Hamilton.
0: Yeah. Like, she <laughs> likes Hamilton. She she actually was in a production this summer of um, Hairspray. So it's like you know Good Morning Baltimore and yeah. all these kinds. My of daughter stuff.
1: was in that in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um,
0: when she goes to like take a bath. She will bring, you know, like her phone in there and she'll play, um, I'll hear Phantom of the Opera and, you know, this type of stuff, you know, so, uh, it's kind of cool because I, I don't have to listen to whatever you know right. sort of teenage pop music is. Right. And I don't really want to listen to that, but she, I'll also play stuff for her and she, she recognizes it. Like I'll ask like, you know, you know, do you know, who, do you recognize who this is? And, and, um, so she'll, she can recognize like Chuck Berry, you know, she, um, uh, she knows the Grateful Dead when she hears it. And, um, you know, so so I've tried to, like, I, basically my theory is if you plant the seeds deep enough, they'll survive through now <laughs> yeah. until maybe mid-20s, <laughs> and then, then they can sprout back up again. And, and would she recognize the roller rink music? Uh, she would not know Steely Dan, no. I don't <laughs> think she's ever heard Steely Dan.
2: So your wife's kind of gone, like, she's asleep on that job she right. planting seeds she needs to plant her own seeds <laughs> on that you know, it's like...
1: uh, okay well let's do song number two
2: okay yeah i think
0: it would be better for this one to um let's just play it and then i can maybe talk a little bit about it afterwards if that's okay
1: okay uh come on in my kitchen robert johnson recorded 1936 oh <laughs>
0: You know, Robert Johnson's box set came out, I believe, in like nineteen ninety, and so I was in high school, and uh, you know, I did that. That's really the first person who really I started really getting into the blues, which has become an important part of of my life, really. And um, you know, it just sounded, you know, to, if you think about a, uh, you know, kind of a nineteen ninety high schooler from you know Kentucky, kind of semi rural Kentucky. Uh, who's you know really thought of uh, you know maybe the most soulful music they could think of was Michael Jackson you know it's it's kind of like this is something from a different planet you know yeah <laughs> but, yeah you know that I, I really hadn't even listened to that much acoustic music before you know and it's just, just something about it I just remember I bought it at record Smith that record store I was telling you about and um, you know I remember really liking it and I would I bought um, John Lee Hooker, and I bought Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf, people like that, other um, acoustic folks, um, you know, blues. And, you know, there was, you know, I remember being a high schooler and I would drive around and I had a, a brown hatchback Datsun with a tape player in it. And I can remember driving around, you know, listening to John Lee Hooker, you know, and it's just, you know, there weren't that many... I'm not trying to brag. I'm just a statement of fact. It's like there weren't that many, you know, like high schoolers in Richmond, Kentucky driving around listening to like Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and right. stuff. And I just, I just really started really liking that sound of the blues, you know. And, and even the songs like – even when I didn't know what the blues really was, the songs like in the Rolling Stones I like the best – uh, like uh, Midnight Rambler, Love in Vain, which is a Robert Johnson song. I didn't know that at the time. Hmm. You know, but when the when Love in, when uh, like Midnight Rambler near the end, when they start getting like really, really, really bluesy, particularly in some of their live versions, I can remember loving that part, but I had no idea why. Hmm. I didn't know really that was the blues. So um you know I, I heard a thing that you know, the blues is often a music that people get into chronologically backwards. Hmm. You know, they, yeah. they learn about, you know, Led Zeppelin or they learn about the Rolling Stones and then they think about who, you know, they learn about who those folks, you know, uh, who were their influences and they, who were those people's influences. So you kind of are traveling into the music backwards chronologically. Um, so that's one I think that was important. And I, and I actually have a, a picture of Robert Johnson in my office. So it's, a, it's the one with him with the guitar and he's got the cigarette. And um, so he's just, to me, really my my. Favorite, you know, blues person. I think just because of the the, the tone of his voice, you know, and singing style, and um, that's kind of why I wanted to do the song first, just because it's just kind of so arresting to hear that with no context, you know. And that's I think one of his one of his uh, most beautiful. And it's the only one where you can hear his voice, where he's not where he's talking. Um, you know, there is no recording of his voice other yeah. than that little snippet right there where he says, "Can't you hear the wind?" How? Um, the other one is uh, in a roundabout way. I met my wife because of Robert Johnson. Um, she knew enough she – she didn't know the blues super well. She didn't know Robert Johnson super well, but she knew Robert Johnson well enough to know who he was. And um, I was – I went to graduate school at the University of South Carolina, GoCox, And um, I w- had an apartment there and uh, South Carolina was playing University of Kentucky where we both went to undergrad, my wife and I. We didn't know each other, but we were both English majors at the same time at UK, but we had, we had never met each other. And uh, but we had a friend in common. And uh, so a bunch of my friends were coming down to Columbia, South Carolina from Kentucky to watch the UK, South Carolina football game. And uh, this mutual friend, I told her, I was like, yeah, I got a bunch of my friends coming down. You know, why don't you come to your friends coming down? We'll all have a big weekend. So she brought a bunch of her friends, one of whom was my wife, Christy, uh, down there. And uh, my apartment at the time, this was the CD era. So I had about five or six hundred CDs, all alphabetized. You know, because on, you're organized. Because I'm organized. <laughs> well, with that many, I, yeah, had, to, I had to know yeah. how to find them. If one got misplaced, you know, I, who knows how I could find it? So, uh, they were all, uh, you know, this, this wall of CDs, and then I had, uh, you know, kind of framed pictures of different uh, people. You know, Robert Johnson. I had a picture of the Black Crows. I even had, I think, a Frank Sinatra picture. I had Bruce Springsteen. Just all these kind of different folks around, and. Um, so she saw that there was Robert Johnson and she didn't say anything at the time. And um, I was really excited for my friends to come over. I wasn't particularly concerned one way or the other about these other people that came. And so she sort of saw me and she liked all my music. She liked Bruce Springsteen and you know all this kind of stuff that she saw. And I was completely ignoring her. And um, so uh, – Later in the evening, we were out in Columbia, South Carolina, and some of my friends were talking in a booth, and one of them uh, throws out, you know, who's the greatest bluesman of all time? And my future wife, Christy, says, Robert Johnson. She didn't really know much about Robert Johnson, but she knew I had a framed picture of Robert Johnson on my wall. She was making a move. She was making a move. (laughs) I I had never – I had never met a female who knew who Robert Johnson was. <laughs> so I grabbed my friend by the collar and pull him out of the booth and I plop down next to her. I'm like, how do you know about Robert Johnson? You know, and then you know, the rest is history. Wow. That's a great song story. Yeah. So we uh so she kind of used Robert Johnson as bait and uh, and it was effective. Yeah. It only <laughs> took one cast. <laughs> right,
1: exactly. <laughs> um you mentioned earlier about the research that you do. Mm-hmm. Um talk about that some. You, you said uh, culture of the American South, music, literature, religion, like when did mm-hmm. that come along and what are you doing? Working on a book, I
0: understand? Yeah. And, and actually the book part will kind of come into song number three, you know, okay. that we can mention more so. But um, so I did, uh, you know, 19th century American lit and also Southern lit were kind of my two areas for grad school. And, um, you know, really, I was always—I mean—I enjoyed reading, but my main thing that made me interested in it was um, I really liked how literature could be like a window into a particular time period. So you know, by reading you know the short stories of Stephen Crane or something, you know, you can learn more about the 1890s America. And maybe it's part of me being like a failed history major, was you know I liked the history side of literature more than I liked the literature itself. You know, um, I didn't really care to sit around and like, you know. Um, pick out the similes in a, in a poem so much as I was interested in how like Walt Whitman's romanticism was reflective of, you know, 18th century or 19th century America or something. Um, so I, had, I graduated. I, my, my first job was in Charleston, South Carolina after grad school. And I remember uh, driving. Uh, we were taking like a Saturday day trip, my wife and I. And it occurred to me like, well, if I like – if I use literature as a vehicle for getting into the like culture of a time period – why can't I do that with music? You know, like, why can't, you know, I mean, I've got a PhD in English, like I can interpret, right? I I know the history. I know, I know the background of these things, intellectual history and politics and all that. So why don't I, instead of just doing literature, what if I start doing more um, music? And, And, you know, and so at first I tried to like work on some projects where, you know, I looked at the literature and music of a, of like let's say the 1930s, you know, in, in, in the South, and kind of tried to talk about themes or or, or connections between those two um, mediums, and um, and then eventually I kind of got less and less and less literature and more and more and more um, you know music, and then I, I wrote an article on um, uh, Graham Parsons. Some of you may know he's kind of late 60s, like Flying Burrito Brothers, um, Grant Parsons and the Fallen Angels. And um, you know, so I wrote it. on – It was called "Grand Parsons in the Christ Haunted South," which is uh, a, a term from Flannery O'Connor. But I was so I was taking what Flannery O'Connor, you know, in her literature was talking about, but I was applying it to you know a rock star, and because he had a very hmm. kind of quote unquote. Oh,
2: he's from Winterhaven.
0: Yeah, yeah, Winterhaven. Um, his uh, grandfather's house is uh, the main house uh, in Legoland. <laughs> Whoa! There's like a there's like an old style like kind of almost plantation home. Yeah, that that was his grandfather's house. Uh, his first gig is in Winter Haven. It's called Derry Downs, and it is uh, it was like a club in Winter Haven, and that's where he played his first concert. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Anyway, so, you know, that then once that happened, I just kind of like jettisoned the literature almost completely and just sort of started strictly getting into really music scholarship because there is there's a whole scholarship on, you know, music and popular music. And it's not really musicology. It's not like people looking at chord progressions or this and that. It's people looking at just like I what I was I was originally doing with literature, which is, you know, kind of talking about kind of culture and history and intellectual movements and things through um, you know the, the the popular music. I see it as kind of a lens into the time period, you know, so to speak. And so that that's really what, what I would say. Like my my research agenda is now. And what's the book you're writing? It is uh, on the music history of Clarksdale, Mississippi, home of the blues. Uh, that's what
1: that's what it, when I googled it, that's what came up.
0: <laughs> it is it is probably the most blues centric city. Uh, you know, on earth, I would imagine. You know, it is more more self-consciously blues than any other city. You know, Chicago, yeah, there's blues in Chicago, but Chicago's got a lot more going on (laughs) for it than just the blues. Uh, Memphis, of course, has blues and Elvis and things, but there's a lot more going on in Memphis than just that. Clarksdale is only about maybe 15,000 people, and, uh, and, you know, really a lot of it's – Economy, You know, it's kind of predicated on blues tourism, blues clubs, things of that nature. And um, I, I wrote an article actually on the history of blues tourism in Clarksdale. So how did it become a place that they – you know, how did they decide that they were going to be, you know, what they call home of the crossroads or home of the blues mm-hmm. or, you know, um, they also, you know, call themselves, you know, birthplace of the blues. And, you know, there's a little hyperbole in that, little marketing. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, – uh, you know how did that happen? You know when did that happen, and and what are the dynamics involved in that? So I, I published an article in a, in a journal called Southern Cultures that's kind of the history of blues tourism in in Clarksdale, Mississippi.
2: Hmm. Is um, I was going to use the word antithetical, but it's probably not accurate. Is is blues and t- let's say tourism or consumerism mm-hmm. like are they kind of at odds because of the what's being expressed in the song?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a very good question. Um, I would just say that um, mostly blues has always been Saturday night party music. Now, what we just listened to with Robert Johnson was a little bit more angst-ridden, you know. But, sure. But, um, you know, really when you look at the history of the blues, it was, um, you know, kind of developed in, you know, the early 20th century in – rural South, uh, East Texas, North Louisiana, Mississippi Delta, Georgia, where there were large African-American populations, um, you know, the – like Sears catalogs had started selling guitars, mass, mass-produced mass guitars that you could order. You know, so guitars started becoming a little bit more attainable. And when people, you know, worked all week, you know, whether that was a sharecropper, lumber mill, you know, uh, making railroads, clearing swamps, whatever the case may be, you know, Saturday night was the night to cut loose. You know, there was whether that was, you know, drinking, gambling, dancing, and they needed music for it. And so really the blues developed in that context as like Saturday night party music. So somewhat nowadays we have a bit of a it's not to say wasn't sometimes dealing with sad or serious topics, but sometimes we think of it as, you know, strictly um, a kind of, you know, old black man on front porch singing yeah. songs about lamenting you know, yeah, yeah, yeah lamenting and that sort of stuff and sure. There is a little bit of that, like if you listen to some Skip James and some things where he has some really like kind of pretty heavy songs about the depression and stuff mm-hmm. that no one would ever dance to.
2: It just feels like for for a lot of Americans, uh, there's like a bifurcation from blues and jazz. Mm-hmm. And like if you want to mm-hmm. have fun, you listen to jazz. If you want to like feel sad, you listen to the blues. Yeah, yeah, and, you know. But I, you're right. And, no, but, I don't think that's true. I just think that that's how a lot of people, yeah, categorize and, them.
0: And something you'll you'll hear in song number three is like that's the that's the joyful side. The sort of I mean, it's it's. You know, it really was like the cut loose kind of music. You I mean you had a little bit of money. You had a little bit of time. And you know the, the blues developed around parties. Um, you had some clubs that you could uh, – maybe had jukeboxes and things. But those were in towns. And if you were a black person in the early 20th century, you weren't in town hanging out partying after dark. What would happen is there would be a store or there would be somebody's house or there could be a commissary that they would push all the stuff against the wall and they would have a, mm. a, par- a house party. You know, that was what a juke was. You know, it, it wasn't a permanent club. It was a place. It was a temporary space. And people would go out there and they would, um, you know, sometimes they call it ballin' or cherry ballin' or juking, and they would juke till the sun came up, you know, and there had to be somebody out there to supply the music for it. So like a juke joint would yep. be a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, juke joint was, was typically a, a impermanent uh, spot for uh, people to, to party in. And, you know, and part of party and is having music. And so uh, you know, and then eventually, you know, juke joints and, and live music gets replaced a little bit more by juke boxes. And um, you know, they uh um you know, and and now, you know, there's 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 fewer and fewer and fewer kind of live music, you know, in in those types of, of places and there's fewer of those of those places, period. But um, you know, blues originally was 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 um the, the cut loose Saturday night music and it was um, less so the sort of existential angst kind of music. Do you know who Dick Spotswood is? I've heard the name.
1: You ought to get to know him. He lives in Naples. He's, okay. I've got. I printed up. He was on the show back in 2019. Um, this is the how the opener went. Dick Spot Dick Spottswood's uh, Wikipedia entry, which is robust to say the least, describes him as an American musicologist and author from Maryland who has cataloged and been responsible for the reissue of thousands of recordings hmm. of vernacular music in the United States. He's published books. He's issues. he has a record label. He started back in the '60s. He's hosted a show on WAMU in Washington D.C. Wow. on bluegrass music and uh, like roots country music since 1967. He's, he's still, still doing. making it. Yeah, Dang. today he's like 90 years old. We went to wow. his house. <laughs> Yeah, but he would be like w- within your world of mm-hmm. interest in that era, he would be a treasure mm-hmm. yeah, of absolutely. information. He's yeah. also
2: got a bajillion records. Oh, Yeah. So, like like <laughs> just I can connect shows. you with him. He would okay. love to
1: talk yep. to
0: you if you were interested. Yeah, yeah and no, if you want to hear
2: it. His episode is number 79.
0: Okay. So, okay, time for song 3. Okay. Let me I'll give you a little setup on that. Um so uh, I knew I liked the blues. I knew I was really kind of into it, but I didn't really know anything about Clarksdale itself. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, like a lot of people, people say Clarksville, you know, like that's like a, tennis, a town in Tennessee. You know, I, I, I just didn't geographically, I, di- I didn't know much about its history um, or anything. And so my wife and I were in Oxford, Mississippi for a three day weekend. And uh, because I'd been to Oxford a few times and really liked it and um And maybe she'd been there with me once before or something. But we went for a three day weekend. We lived in Kentucky and drove down there. And, um, you know, I Oxford's a very small town. It's fun, but it's very small. And three days in Oxford is a lot of time to walk around the square, you know. And there's, you know, you kind of seen it after a few turns. So I was like, what else is going on around here? And about an hour away from Oxford is Clarksdale, and it was their annual Juke Joint Festival. Uh, This was 10 years ago. And I didn't know anything about it. I had no clue what the festival was going to be about. I, I assumed it was going to be bluesmen playing in kind of an outdoor amphitheater. And you could get like, you know, a uh, lawn chair and sit there and, you know, you know buy like warm beer from a vendor. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and I had no idea, though. But And um, so we drove over and, you know, it was pretty crowded going into town. There was a lot of people around, a lot of people walking. We had a park. You know, several blocks from downtown, and I noticed you know an eclectic group of people walking in, and I noticed people were drinking beer, walking down the street, you know, and like what is all this? And I we turned the corner, like kind of one of the main streets called Delta Avenue, and you know, really at every street corner they had live music, and it was all outside, and it was all um, you know, just uh, there. You just basically wandered around and listened to music, and they, the reason they purposely created it this way was they wanted um, tourists and people from Clarksdale to interact together. and they wanted people that lived in Clarksdale to see that they had something that people from all over the world wanted to get. Hmm. you know so if you had to pay a lot of money to go to it, if you had to go you know get a ticket and go through a fence and sit there at that amphitheater, no one from town would go do it. right. But if you had it as a big festival, it was fun, it was outdoors, you had beer and you had and they, they also get like crazy stuff like monkeys uh, monkeys riding dogs, herding sheep is one of the 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 Living
1: monkeys riding living dogs herding living sheep.
0: Yes, monkeys are in in saddles riding dogs and they are herding sheep. Yep, it's pretty amazing. There's a guy who looks like kind of Garth Brooks who's like kind of the conductor of it all. And he says like, (laughs) and he goes, this is a funny side story. He goes, he goes, people ask me all, he has like this little microphone, you know, that's like, you know, it comes down like this. And he's like, people ask me all the time, how do you make them monkeys ride dogs? And he goes, he goes, I don't make them ride they want to ride. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone starts hooting and hollering. Yeah. So, so that's what some people from Clarksdale are wanting to come in and see. But they're also seeing people from Japan and Australia yeah. and D.C. Uh, so and, can
2: you explain yeah. briefly, because you, you kind of like flew right past it, because I know yeah, yeah, for you, it's like it's, it's right out in front. But um, why Clarksdale? Can you explain the crossroads? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Clarksdale is... Uh, it's about an hour south of Memphis uh-huh. and it's at about 15,000 people. It is um, the hometown of uh, – John Lee Hooker was born just outside of Clarksdale. Uh, some of you all know W.C. Handy. He is the the composer that first wrote down what blues music sounded like on um, on like musical notation, mm-hmm. sheet music. And he wrote a lot of things like St. Louis blues and Memphis blues, things like that. that he was around like 1903. He was living in Clarksdale when he heard the blues music for the first time. He was at a train station and he heard uh, like a field hand playing a guitar by himself. W.C. Handy was African-American, but he was classically trained. He was a, a band conductor in town. That's what he why he was living in Clarksdale was to play like a, a John Philip Sousa marching band kind of music. And he's like, what is this stuff? Just C major everything. Like he would, he would yeah, yeah. play everything. Yeah.
2: Ba, ba, ba.
0: Yep, yep. And um, so he uh, – he heard it and he started seeing how popular it was amongst some of the folks that lived in the area. And that's what kind of convinced him to um, start writing blues music, you know, and, and turn it he saw it as something that was really lucrative, you know, kind of thing. So he was from there. Uh, Muddy Waters is from Clarksdale and lived there until he was up in his 20s. Uh, Ike Turner is from Clarksdale. The first rock and – roll not the first. One of the very first rock and roll songs, Rocket 88, 1951, that was uh, written by um, Ike Turner and played by um, uh, all of uh, – all the band members were from Clarksdale. They recorded at Sun Records you know, three years before Elvis. And uh, Bessie Smith, who's a really famous blues queen, she died um, in uh, the same – she died in the same building where about 15 years later, Ike Turner was going to write that song. Wow! So hmm. – Anyway, it's just – it's just it seems like you can tell the entire story of popular American music in the 20th century by looking at this, like, microcosm of, you know, sort of field hollers to – oh, yeah, actually the first written description of what blues music sounds like took place in Clarksdale. And, and,
2: and US 61 mm-hmm. and 49. Yep,
0: yep, 61. And there's also uh, – well, and Clarksdale now claims that, that they are – that that intersection is the intersection where Robert Johnson right. sold his soul to the devil. Which um uh, It's part of his mythos. Like. Yeah, part of and and they, they didn't start claiming that until like only about maybe twenty years ago. <laughs> you know. Uh that, that they hired a
1: consultant.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well actually funny, there was a documentary on Levon Helm from the band, mm-hmm. you know, and uh he's from near there. He's from just outside of um Helena, Arkansas, which is across the the, um, Mississippi River from um, Clarksdale, also home to Conway Twitty. And um, yeah, this is an information rich episode. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And uh, so Levon, they were doing a documentary on Levon sometime in like the early 90s. And he was driving through Clarksdale. And he says in this documentary, there's the crossroads where Robert Johnson sold a soul to the devil. And they don't even recognize that. Isn't that a shame? There was a couple lawyers in town watching that. And they were like, Hmm. home of the crossroads huh? so, and then so there's actually a, a guy Adam Gasso. he is a professor at the University of Mississippi he wrote a book about the devil in the blues that just came out a couple of years ago we actually had him speak at FGCU um, a few years ago uh, and he has an entire chapter on how Clarksdale kind of came to claim themselves as the home of the crossroads hmm. so um, that's that's another part of, the, part of the tourism right that people come for so um, but I was uh so you're walking past the guy with the monkey on the dog chasing <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. we are drinking. <laughs> well, I decided I'm going to go back to my car and get the beer out of the trunk and put it in my backpack. Because I can. Because I can, because apparently there are no public container laws in Clark Sale, apparently. And... Um, you know, so we just spent this amazing afternoon you know, walking around, hearing great music, meeting people that live there. Um, in the evening, all the, all the venues go in – or all the musicians go inside. There's, there's you know, different clubs and, and, and kind of joints, uh, some that are only open really during juke joint. They're kind of older ones that are never open regularly during the year, but they use them as live music venues. And that's when you have to buy like a, a arm bracelet to kind of get in, but it gets you admission to any of them. So you can just kind of hop around all over town. Um, it's all walkable and uh, listening to some amazing music. So I remember turning the corner on Delta Avenue and looking down and seeing, you know, the whole kind of sweep of the festival. And it just felt, felt like the whole world went kind of sideways and back. And it was just sort of like, whoa, like, what is this? Like, what is happening? And uh, so then, you know, we went back the following year. And, you know, now, um, you know, I pre, you know, pre-COVID, you know, I was probably going at least – at least three times a year, I, I got an NEH grant to work with the library there. On so you spent a lot of time there. A lot of time there. So now, like, when I go to Clarksdale, I spend my whole time hanging out with people who are who are from Clarksdale. You know what I mean? Like, I go to their houses to eat. You know, I, I go out with them. You know, like, like I, I really don't – I'm not around the tourist side as much anymore as I am h- hanging out with the people who live there. Hmm. And um, so it's really become, like, you know, almost like a home away from home. You know, just from um, I I honestly like when we evacuated for Irma, you know, if it was I I almost drove to Clarksdale because I thought, you know, you know, that would be, you know, I would know everybody we could get. I knew who we could stay with. You know, we could, you know, be comfortable and also have a lot of fun. You know, But it was like a 14 hour drive from here. So we didn't we didn't want to go quite that far. But like that's like how much we've kind of gotten connected with Clarksdale was it was almost where we left, you know, when we were leaving a hurricane.
1: So. so the song that you have mm-hmm. brought us is what and why?
0: So this is uh Shake 'em by the all night long blues band, which is no longer uh in existence anymore. But one the Sean Bad Apple, who is the main singer, uh, he still plays in Clarksdale. He's got a he's got a club called Bad Apple's Blues Club. Uh that is um That's a great name. Yeah, and it's it is it is as janky as a, as you would ever hope a blues club to be. I mean it is just you know, it is not commercialized, let's put it that way. There is no polish. There is no <laughs> polish whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the last time I was there, when you wanted a beer, Sean would stop playing guitar and go get you a beer out of the refrigerator <laughs> and hand it to you. <laughs> and I and we joked that the, the beer it was Bud Light Cans and it smelt like burnt tires. <sighs> like that was that was that's Bad Apple's Blues Club. So, um, and one of the the singer or one of the the harmonica player, his name was Big Boy, and uh, he actually died and uh, had like a heart attack and, and is no longer you know, alive. So you know the All Night Long Blues Band is gone, but they would always play the Juke Joint Festival, and um, you know we would go see them at night. You know we, they would play during the day and then they'd play somewhere else at night, and um, they really we were talking earlier about that kind of exuberance and Saturday night kind of music. Um, the All Night Long Blues Band really, I think, captures that kind of sense of just sort of like, um, like I- I'll give you one quick example. When I was in college, I was studying in the library in a carol, and someone had scrawled on the carol, and I, I won't say the full word, said "F art," you know, "Let's dance," <laughs> you know. And so I kind of, like, that's kind of in some ways a sort of like feeling of like throwing off everything and just boogieing, you know. And like the All Night Long Blues Band does that very well. And I think so much of like the blues is about that because, um, you know, when you watch the performers in the clubs, I mean, they're upset when people aren't moving, when people aren't – you know, I've seen the the musicians try to get someone who's just sitting there uncomfortably in their chair to get to start moving or at least recognize what's going on, you know. Um, and you know it really feeds off that, and they feel like they're not doing what they're supposed to do. It's, it's not the kind of situation where, and I kind of blame Dylan for this, even though I love Dylan. Where you buy a ticket and you sit there and, and you watch a popular act, like the you know like they're in a museum or something. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like it's built to you know to party, you know, and like they want people up and moving. And I've seen people grab tambourines and get behind the bands and start playing it. And then later, I'm like, who is that? And they're like, we don't know. <laughs> like, they, they play three songs with you. I don't know who she is. You know? And um, so that that kind of just exuberance and just kind of raw, just sort of boogie is something that you get a lot of in Clarksdale. And I think the all-night-long blues band does that maybe better than anybody else. Why do you pick this particular song? Just because it's—I think it's the most outstanding version of that. This is this is a cover song. This isn't—I um, think maybe Mississippi Fred McDowell maybe did it originally, or maybe the first to record it. I honestly forget off the top of my head. But um, this is this is a traditional song. This is played by a lot of blues acts. Um, it's not just them, but they do it. In, and this is one of the best versions and the most kind of vibrant versions that I'm aware of. When you're uh, when you would hear him play it, would you get up and dance? Um, yeah, yeah, it was really kind of impossible okay. not to. Okay,
1: yeah. Well, let's listen to it. Uh, "Shake 'Em" by the All Night Blues Band from their 2013 album "Shake."
2: Must uh, all shake 'em all down.
0: That's a fun song. Yeah, and you know, it, it's so much less powerful. You know, just listening to it. You know, when you're when you're there, and whether it's in the street or whether that is uh, in a club. And it's being played live for you, you know, right in front of you, and people are just shaking them on down, you know, right there. And uh um, you know, that's just it's just like that's such like the the neutered version, you know, it's just the really the the really the full powerful is you got you just gotta be there and yeah, see it.
2: Yeah, we had something similar happen. Somebody had brought in one of their songs was um it was like Latin and it was like dance music. Mm-hmm. And um you could hear like the musicality and the instrumentation, but but like mm-hmm without being in a room full of people dancing to that music, which is obviously made Mm -hmm. (laughs) for it, it definitely lost like something in the playback.
0: Yeah. I I can remember like when we saw them, I think the first night we saw them, uh, it was at this little room, you know, like just a living room basically. And, um, you know, it, it was packed. I mean, just fire code bedammed kind of thing. And, I mean, it was packed. They, all, they were passing around moonshine. The band themselves were giving moonshine to the audience. <laughs> People were dancing shoulder to shoulder. I remember a roach fell off the ceiling and landed on the shoulder of the person dancing in front of me. And, uh, you know, it was just crazy. Did you help him out? No, no, actually, <laughs> actually, I, looked at my, I pointed it out to my wife and we laughed. And going. <laughs> so I, I don't, we didn't, I wasn't going to get in the road removal business, but he, he, he was oblivious and I think it just shook right off pretty quickly. You know, what's not happening around the world right now, that,
1: that. you mm-hmm. know, yeah. like that energy, that collective experience. Yeah, I, I, I'm concerned about the long-term impact of that, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, you know, I did, uh, there's a, a Clarksdale Film Festival that I moderated a couple panels at. They did it virtually this year and well they had a, a few in person things, but it was mainly virtual. And the panels were and one of them was, was Blues in the Age of COVID, where mm-hmm. we had a couple of musicians that were from Clarksdale that are that are pretty pretty well decorated and um you know, talking to them about what this is doing to their career. One of them who's older, I mean he's gotta be in his mid sixties. He's actually driving a truck right now because he can't make you know, his his career's just you know, on pause, and uh, so it's 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 hurting. And a lot of the people that you know own music clubs, the people that um, run businesses that rely on tourists coming in, uh, the people that run hotels, Airbnbs, you know, all this stuff. I mean, you know, the, the the part of Clarksdale's economy is it was propped up by having you know a stream of of revenue coming in and in sales tax and hotel room taxes and. And, and and people who were in the music business being able to have regular gigs. You know, they were there was live music seven nights a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year in Clarksdale for years. And now uh, there's some live music as long as it can be kind of socially distanced and this and that. But you know, the majority of it is is them broadcasting stuff on like live Facebook pages and, you know, kind of basically asking for tips.
1: And, uh, and the people who would be at those shows, you know, you see a really great show, and it lifts you up. Mm-hmm. You walk with a little spring in your step for a while, mm-hmm. and that's just – you're not getting that through those Facebook shows.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I Actually, I have a very difficult time watching them just because it just doesn't – I don't know. It just doesn't do it for you. You know, when you kind of know the real thing, it's hard to watch that as much as you want to be supportive of it.
2: It's kind of like the um, the – Facebook, uh, it's like the inverse of singer-songwriters, right? mm-hmm. like people who are able to like sit and soulfully sing into mm-hmm. a, a camera, a webcam while playing an acoustic guitar. Like yeah. Those, they're doing great because mm-hmm. that's right down the middle for them. But mm-hmm. people who require, you know, an interactive crowd just, I mean, they are I'm sure they're trying, but yeah. Yeah, you know,
0: it's 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 really difficult for them, you know, because and again, you know, they, they really one of the strengths of Clarksdale was that they could count on consistent gigs because yeah. there was there was some place open every night of the week. It would maybe only be one place. There'd be a Tuesday night place and then a Wednesday night place and then a Thursday night place. But you could get consistent gigs and and actually be a professional musician in a way that, that maybe you couldn't have thirty years ago there. Uh but you know, all that's on pause right now in the festivals. You know, Clark the Juke the Joint Festival brings in uh, it almost doubles the size of the town, you know. I mean, it, it brings in around ten thousand, twelve thousand people, you know, at, at its apex for the weekend. And again, the town's maybe fifteen thousand. Every hotel room within an hour circumference drive of Clarksdale is, is filled, and um, it was canceled last year. You know, so this year they're doing it, but it's on a much more modest scale. So it, it's hurt. There's a trickle down in the economy, you know, to that to an area like that. That's it's going to be filled for years, probably.
1: We're going to get past this, and we're going to keep making this show forever. And so at some point, you know, Mm. when we've done like 700 episodes, this is going to be an interesting time capsule of us reflecting on, like, this, this, remember what it was like? Hey, future people. Hey, future people. (laughs) (laughs) It sucked, future people. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Um, Okay, we're going to do sort of a semi-speed round here to head toward the end. Uh, if you were a championship wrestler, what song would you come in on? The mm. uh, Final Countdown by Europe. Solid answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we normally try to encourage our guests to see sing TV theme songs with us, but I figure mm-hmm. if you won't even sing by yourself. I really don't. I, yeah, I don't even like <laughs> singing by myself.
2: I'm curious. I just like the answer to the question, are there any TV theme songs that you, if you had to, you think you could sing all the words? Um, you watch so much that you just.
0: I could maybe do. Gilligan's Island, maybe we just did that last week. Yeah, yeah. for that's, the first time ever, that stands out as, as one. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I could do um, see it right here. <laughs> <"Hear> a tale, <laughs> tale of a fateful ship, <laughs> started from this tropic port aboard this mighty ship. That's more of speaking than singing. That's okay. There's a little the bit of spoken word. Yeah, version. the Shatner. Yeah.
1: Have you ever? Are you are you familiar with Puddle's Pity Party? Yeah. <sighs> Have you heard his Stairway to Heaven? Gilligan's Island
0: yes 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 that's really good
1: we'll use it as the parting tune for this episode yeah, the best is
0: he does uh uh dancing queen really mm-hmm. slow where he live and he like starts dance slow dancing with a man in the audience while he's singing it it's really good
1: he uh was one of the last shows that we saw before covid mm. me and uh richard and, and a group of people i yeah. uh, saw him at sydney and burn davis art center in downtown fort myers Ooh. very very small venue i would love to do that um the um the Director of the Art Center's wife knows Puddle's sister, huh. so and she lives in Punta Gorda. So he was going to be in the area, so they booked him. Maybe 150 people, Richard, probably? That's about right, yeah. And wow. he, he came in um, and walked <laughs> around and spent a moment with every member of yeah. the audience. He yeah. shook your hand, he fist bumped he you, walked he aisle. hugged women, yeah. he went down every aisle mm-hmm. and yeah. spent like an awesome. eye contact moment. It was unbelievable. He also,
2: he also, one of the big, I don't know if it was the finale, but like one of the big moments towards the end of the show was he worked his way through the crowd and, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody got their cell phones out (laughs) videoing it. And what he did was he would go to, like, the first person and he would take their phone and hold it in his face while it was recording but he would keep walking. (laughs) So he'd walk, like, five, six people down Right. And then he would like, he'd, you know, did, mugging did the he camera. Trade and off they would, the phones. He'd hand oh it to someone God. else and then take theirs. He did it then, through the whole audience. Go, There's people running
1: around. Is that my phone? Is that my yeah. phone? Yeah. So oh after it's God, over, they hilarious. put the lights
2: up and they're like, "Okay, find your phone." But so my my wife on her cell phone has a video of puddles just like staring into the camera singing and walking Oh, that's yeah, awesome it's wonderful
1: and it's great marketing too because a lot of those people were going live on facebook so can you imagine you're sitting there you're <laughs> watching and suddenly you're here's puddles walking around mm-hmm. with your phone yeah, yeah, it's a yeah good show. that's smart uh, yeah
0: a- when all this is over whenever he comes back i'm there yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be
2: there. let me know yeah.
1: if you could broadcast a song into the brain of every person on the planet
0: simultaneously which would you choose uh I would do, uh, let me think here. Scarlet Begonia is by the Grateful Dead. Good answer. That would make everyone a
1: lot happier. You're good at the speed round. Um, if you could learn any instrument instantly, which would it be?
2: Not guitar.
0: Not guitar. Okay. Um, he already knows guitar.
2: That's what I'm saying.
0: Any instrument um, instantly, yeah. which would it be? Violin would be pretty good. You know, that would be a pretty useful thing. Classical to pick up.
1: style or fiddle style? Classical, <laughs> if,
0: as long as I'm learning it instantly, let's do classical.
1: Yeah. Uh song you've listened to the most times in your life.
0: Mm. Hmm. I know Apple Music used to have like a metric where you could like maybe they still do but you could see how many times you played it. Um I don't know. Probably Thriller. I that would be you yeah yeah because out. just because yeah because you know I listened to, you know I only had like 10 tapes and so I listened to to those so much so I I wouldn't be surprised if uh, like Beat It is up there. <laughs> Um, or, uh, like, you know, maybe a black crow song or something like that, but probably just numerically, I wouldn't be surprised if it's something from like Michael Jackson, you
1: know, in the future, like people will have all that data mm-hmm. because everything's just going to be collected and you're mm-hmm. just going to be able to pull up like a big spreadsheet and be like, how many times have I done this? Yep. No
2: record player is going to upload the playback. To right. Writer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, karaoke.
0: Have I done it? Would you do it? Are you willing? I, I have done it. Okay,
2: I have done it. It was
0: at, after a wedding, uh, a friend of mine and I we uh, sang "Islands in the Stream" to each other. <laughs> cool. Because which part were you? Uh, I don't remember. But we we did a thing <laughs> where um, where you got to pick the song for the person that came like before you. Oh, that's, you oh, that's yeah, cool. That's I a did. great idea. And so a friend of ours said, um, you know, uh, he picked "Islands in the Stream" for us, and me and one of my best friends, we were going to do it. And so he reaches out and he holds my hand and he looks at me and he goes, Andy Kaufman, Andy Kaufman.
2: And I knew what he was saying. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Play it
0: straight. Yeah. Because they all wanted us to like ham it up and yeah. be funny. So we sang it like we were in love to each other. And we, we actually almost like ruined everyone's fun because it was so creepy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He's really sold it.
0: Yeah. So I remember he just goes, Andy Kaufman, Andy Kaufman. And I knew exactly what he was saying. So we just played it straight and sang Islands in the Stream well, to each valid. other. Good yes and.
1: Um, if you were a cocktail or a drink of some kind, what would it be?
0: Oh, bourbon.
2: I'm from Kentucky. Bourbon.
1: bourbon. What kind of bourbon? Kentucky bourbon? Give us some specifics so we can put it into our
0: cocktail cookbook.
2: If, if someone named a drink after you. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, gosh. I don't know. I don't do a lot of mixed drinks, really. That's fine. Um, I mean, I like bourbon with like, I, I've even got these sort of like, Rocks that are like the size of like dice that you keep yep. in the freezer, yeah. you know, the whiskey stones. Yeah, 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 mm. exactly. So I, I I really like the taste of bourbon, and I don't really like it adulterated with a lot of stuff. Particular mm. kind. Uh, well, my favorite is uh Four Roses, mm-hmm. um the Four Roses Small Batch is probably my favorite. There's 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 Yellow Label and Single Barrel. And some other like little special varieties. But, you know, it's one of those things like growing up in Kentucky, people nowadays, it's become so big and it's almost fetishized, you know, yeah. like all these bourbons. You know, I love it, but it's like I don't get into like buying a $75 bottle of bourbon, you know, like a $17 bottle, dollar bottle of Four Roses Yellow Label at Publix is fine with me. You know, it's like, you know, it's it's tasty, but it's not something that I want to like collect, you know, in that kind of stuff. It, I don't turn it into this big totem kind of deal. Um, so it's it's you know and there's only like you know ten established distilleries in Kentucky. All that bourbon they're buying it off of distilleries and putting it in new labels. Mm-hmm. You know that it's not even like their own distill their own distilleries.
2: Right. I want to take all the things you just said about mm-hmm. your uh, whiskey stone Kentucky mm-hmm. bourbon cocktail mm-hmm. and name it. <laughs> all that stuff you just said about uh, being from Kentucky.
0: What would it be called? It'd be yeah. it'd, it'd be a. It'd be a, uh, a coldstone clay the coldstone cold stone clay.
1: clay i recently had some of that for roses small batch mm-hmm. for the first time yeah, it was pretty good yeah i'm i'm not i have no problem with jack
0: daniels yeah well the tennessee thing i would have that's a hard time. Tennessee. Oh, that's sorry risky. i would I meant to
1: say jim beam
0: <laughs> sorry yes. sorry yeah, uh, jim beam then that's That's not you know we we had that in
2: college a lot yeah but I feel
0: still like I'm in college (laughs) but we are in a way right where do we go every day
2: I'm a bullet man
0: yeah 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 I I like bullet too I I think bullet's really good Uh, most overplayed song of all time most overplayed song of all time gosh that's tough Um, oh uh, I think all along the watchtower has to be one of them brown eyed girl which wait wait go back all along the
2: watchtower. Which one?
0: Oh, uh, we're just merge them all together. <laughs>
2: well, no, there's two that matter. Um, oh, well, the
1: Dave Matthews is pretty good too. <laughs> Dave,
0: Dave, uh, the, I guess the Hendricks one, it gets played less, I guess. Right. Probably. Yeah. But, but just, I, I, why, I always say, why does anyone ever need to cover that song again? Hmm. You know, I think Brown Eyed Girl is up there as well. Um, we were in New Orleans one time and the guy in the bar started playing um, – these girls tipped him to play Brown Eyed Girl. And a friend of mine threw a $20 bill on stage and yelled, stop. And He was like – <laughs> 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 he, he was outbid right. <laughs> or she was outbid. Right. Um, what
1: album would you choose if you could only listen to that one ever again? Oh, gosh.
0: Um, one album I would choose if I could listen to – if it was the only one I could listen to. Um Hmm. It would probably be a um, some kind of live Grateful Dead tape, only because you know, if you're if you can only listen to one thing ever, that can stretch on for a good three hours worth yeah, of music, like two
1: two side two ninety two minute ninety minute sides.
0: Yeah, and there's there's enough ins and outs to sort of keep you you know sonically interested for quite a while. So it would probably be something like that if that was like my one my one thing i had to grab before i jumped on the spaceship to fly away you
1: know from earth or something um what would your 14 year old self think of who you are here today
0: um i think would be would be pretty cool with it would be surprised at my beard but yeah. other than that i think would be all right
1: well all right um time to recommend three people okay and are these people that are uh living in Fort Myers? No, nope, they can be anywhere.
2: Okay. You have that, to you have to have access to them. Yeah.
1: You got, you got to be able to I can you get know it. give give yeah. say, say here's a show that I did and I want you to be Yeah, on. no
0: the that would be easy cuz I, I listened to the Jim Lorenz one, you know, from just a little while mm-hmm. ago and I I noticed that he he recommended people that weren't just in Fort Myers, which I was I was surprised by. So, um yeah, so I I've, I've got um uh, so I've got 3 and the first one is in Fort Myers. So uh Billy Gunnels, he is the – I know that name. Yeah, he's the director of undergraduate scholarship and he is a biology professor here. Um, so he's also a guy I've done uh, some study abroad in Peru with. He is a, has got a lot of, of different and interesting music tastes. And um, you know I, I, he listens to world music. He listens to punk. He listens to a little bit of everything. And he's just a very interesting person with a lot of unique takes on things. So I think – his background and his story and the way the songs he picks, I think would be would be very interesting. Cool. So Billy Gunnels and he's local. Um, also, uh, speaking of Four Roses, uh, Brent Elliott. Uh, he is one of my best friends from college, and he is the master distiller of Four Roses. Huh. So um, he. Um, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he he was a, a really good friend of mine in in, in college, and you know did not in, start out in life. Expecting to be a master distiller of a of a distillery, but uh, he was actually a chemistry major, and his first job was making glue. But uh, one thing led to another, and now he is uh, getting his picture taken standing in barns, squinting into the distance, holding <laughs> holding bourbon up at his eye level. No, we
1: let's we'll get him on. Yeah. Let's do it.
0: Yeah. So, uh, but he he actually you know he was one of my you know when we're talking about driving or, driving around to listen to the Black Crows, I mean he was one of the people that was you know right there with us. So he's he's got a lot of. Uh, a lot of interest in music as well. Cool. And so, so, Brent Elliott, I could get you in touch with him. And then um, Roger Stoley. He is uh, he runs Cathead, Delta Blues, and Folk Art, uh, which is a record shop in Clarksdale, Mississippi. I was hoping there was somebody in Clarksdale. Yep. Uh, Roger was a ad executive in St. Louis, quit his job to open a record store in Clarksdale. And he is the co founder of the Juke Joint Festival. Uh, he started it, I think. They're close to eighteen years ago, something like that, seventeen years ago he started it. Uh, you know, and he's really been uh one of the top couple people that's really been involved with with getting uh you know tourism, you know, getting Clarkson on the map for tourists, you know, with creating these festivals at different times during the year. He's the one that helped promote uh, you know, and schedule acts to get it, you know, 365 days a year, seven days a week, you know, this kind of stuff. So um, he, you know, of course, listens to blues professionally, you know, all day long in the store. But he also likes, um, you know, like sun raw and free form jazz kind of stuff. And he's always driving, you know, back in the pre-COVID days, he would, you know, go to New York to see these like, you know, just out there jazz folks that I would try to listen to, and it sounded like weird space music and, and strings that I couldn't identify being t- being plucked in atonal ways, you know. So he, he likes everything from like rot gut. You know, very traditional blues to some pretty avant-garde music. And he's really dedicated, you know the the last twenty years of his life to um, helping Clarksdale through you know its music, which I think he would have a pretty fascinating story.
1: I don't know if this is even feasible, but I'm, I know exactly <laughs> what you're going to say. I'm I'm taking ten days off starting tomorrow. What? I'm kind of driving slowly to San Antonio and back. Mm-hmm. How far out of
0: the way is Clarksdale? <laughs> Are you going to go through? Uh... I was just
1: going to go like ten and just you know go up. To okay. the, just go across. But
0: um, Clarksdale is an hour hour and a half south of Memphis. So if you were going on ten, you know it'd be three hours or something. I mean that's just kind of guessing. You know, it'd be somewhere in that but, but, ballpark.
1: But, but three hours each way out of the way
0: yeah but you know you could go up you could go up and then hit memphis and then start heading back down yeah
1: i was gonna say just well do it first. we'll talk after the show let's try to make this happen yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to try to because i'm gonna bring uh, i was just packing up with richard i'm bringing an entire rig with me in case i have to record an episode of this okay. podcast while i'm on the road nice. and if i can if you can coordinate and he's not yeah. against the idea on such short notice Maybe I can just swing through Clarksdale
0: and do an episode. He, I think he'd be game for it. But I, I'll, um, I, you know, I, I can email you both and kind of get that going. But I can call Roger and, and talk okay, to him okay. and uh, kind of kind of bounce off. Start him. thinking
2: of his songs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, okay, Richard, give him the final
1: question. Sure.
2: All right, um, Clay. Of the three songs that you brought us today uh, to listen to, you have to choose between them for these following categories. Okay. One of the songs you're going to guarantee that future generations will always have available. It'll never kind of fall into obscurity. Okay. Uh, one of the songs um, is the only song that you ever get to listen to ever for the rest of your life. Okay. And the third, uh, you erase from having been written Okay. and the ramifications that, that would occur from that as well. Okay. Go.
0: So for the song that should last forever, uh, that would be "Come On in My Kitchen" by Robert Johnson, because that is such a important and kind of elemental song in the history of American music that that has to last. So future generations must know about Robert Johnson. And his,
2: he doesn't have a, a ton of songs, so <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: I think he's got like thirty six recordings. Period. You know, in, including like somewhere he did two takes and that kind of stuff. So that's the one that has to live forever. The one that I could only listen to would be "When I Paint My Masterpiece," because I think that's a little more. Fun to listen to, then come on in my kitchen. So if, and and so, if I'm stuck listening to one song, that would be it. And then shake them on down. We could we could probably delete uh, just because um, there's a lot of songs like it. And like I said, the really the fun of that is I just wanted to express a little bit of the fun of listening to you know live blues in Clarksdale or wherever you might listen to live blues. And, um, you know, there's plenty of other songs like it that you can boogie to. It is, not, it is not dependent on that. And
1: I think he would just be killing the cover, right, Richard? Would that be how we work the rules? Because it's a yeah, cover. Techni-
2: uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought it was the first, time thought the first
0: time we've come up with this I question. We like to have an answer to
2: everything. There.
0: Okay. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so then, then particularly, we, we, that would be the easiest to lose. Okay. But even if you lost all versions of it, there's a lot of other ones res- out there. That- yeah,
2: I reserve the right to change that ruling, I think. Okay,
0: okay. <laughs> uh, all right, Clay, we really
1: appreciate it. Do you have any final thoughts?
0: Uh, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it's been great. So Thank it. you.
0: I've never seen a diamond in the flesh.
1: We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and periodic host. Chris Duffis is executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey Out Studio in St. Pete. Our parting tune this week is the cover of The Lord Song Royals by postmodern Jukebox featuring the one and only Puddles Pity Party. I can clearly remember the first time I saw the video for this song. One does not easily forget seeing a six foot eight clown with a voice of gold swaggering his way through this performance. It's got more than five million views on YouTube, and I and the rest of the Three Song Stories team urge you to check it out and the rest of his truly singular work that's available everywhere you get your six foot eight
2: singing clown videos keep listening next time on three song stories i
0: I ended up ultimately getting recruited for a job in st louis it was kind of the job you move for and then just kept moving up from that until i decided to drop out of corporate america and come here You guys can come in. We're doing a little podcast thing. If you have any questions or anything, just go ahead and interrupt.